All right, well, good morning, everybody. I appreciate our praise team sharing with us. And you see a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with the day of Pentecost. And you may be wondering what that is and why was it being celebrated. And some of you may go, I know what the day of Pentecost is. And it's actually this year supposed to be on June the 5th. So why are you talking about it today, Craig? And some of you may be going, why are you wearing a tie today? <laughs> I'm doing a wedding um, after this afternoon, so I thought I'll just be ready to go. All right, so I'm knotted up for this today. But we're going to talk about Pentecost. And uh, it, it's, you know, I want to ask you this morning, when have you ever been in a situation where you have experienced something supernatural? Now, obviously, you're not going to yell that out loud, but I would imagine some of you have had some kind of experience where you say, I don't, I don't have any explanation for that except that was God and the Holy Spirit doing it. I can't explain any other thing but that. Now, some of you may be visiting me going, uh-oh, is it going to get weird now? <laughs> Are you going to bring the snakes out, you know? Um, no, but I really believe that when we read Scripture from beginning to end, that it's obvious that the Holy Spirit, that supernatural things God used to bring people to understand what was going on, to understand Him, to believe Him, right? Because some of us are hard-headed, hard-hearted sometimes, aren't we? And we need proof. We need something that's supernatural. And even in Scripture, when that happened, there were still people who continued to be hard-headed and hard-hearted and said, oh, they, that's, they have some explanation to explain that away. But today we want to talk about something that happened this, this day of Pentecost. And historically, the biblical origins of this, we can find it in the Old Testament. And we're not going to look at those passages, but if you want to take notes and maybe look back. But in Exodus 23, it's mentioned. Um, Leviticus 23, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy 16. And it is one of the three significant Jewish festivals and Pentecost is the Greek name, which means festival of weeks. And it was a prominent feast. It is a prominent feast in the Jewish calendar that celebrates God giving the Ten Commandments to the Israelites 50 days after they left Egypt. Remember when they exited from Egypt. So 50 days after that, God gave them the Ten Commandments. So after that, they established this festival of weeks to be held for seven full weeks, so seven times seven is 49, and you add one day after Passover equals 50 days, and the name Penta, and a lot of y'all kind of know that means five, and so those 50 days, and also called the Feast of Harvest, and this is when the Jews would present all of the first uh, fruits of their spring crops to God to say, we recognize all of this comes from you, and so we're celebrating that, and so the Jewish law required that all adult Jewish men, they needed to come to Jerusalem, wherever they were living, to personally be in attendance for this Feast of Weeks, this celebration. And so people would make this pilgrimage for that. Now that gives us a little bit of the background of why so many were in Jerusalem on this day um, for Pentecost, for this annual and significant feast and celebration. But if you realize it has only been 10 days since Jesus had ascended. Now, when Jesus was crucified on Passover, and then he was in the grave for three days, he resurrected, and we know from Scripture that he was, uh, for 40 days, he 
moved around and it tells us in Scripture that over 500 people, please understand, it wasn't just the 12 disciples and their families, it was over 500 people that Scripture tells us that saw and experienced the risen Lord. They experienced Him. They touched Him. The nail prints. They saw Him eat. They hugged Him. They knew that this guy that was dead, I see him alive now. How is that possible? So over 500 people. So it's been 10 days since then. It's been 40 days, 50 days since Jesus was crucified. Now think about that. That's significant, isn't it? It wasn't an accident that on this day of Pentecost that God was doing something. And he had told them. I don't know in that first video we just saw... You notice there was a scripture before and after, and it was saying, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I want you to go back to Jerusalem and stay there, and there's something that's going to happen. The counselor, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and you stay there till you receive it. Now, they had heard Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit. They had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus was telling them something was going to be different. And so they were just kind of anticipating this. And I don't know that they really understood what it was going to be like, but they knew something was coming. So Jesus' great commission would start here on this day of Pentecost. It began to be lived out by his followers in this incredible journey that would, if you read that last passage that was up there on the screen, he says it would start in Jerusalem, it would go into all of Judea surrounding Jerusalem, and it would go into Samaria, and then it would go into all of the world. That's how he said to take my word starting in Jerusalem and going and going out. And the amazing thing, it, it, ha, it has continued throughout not only all those geographical specific places that Jesus mentions, but generations of people and cultures and history, that has been going on until this 21st century. And it still continues. And the fact that we're sitting here, the fact that people all over this county are sitting here, all over this country and all over this world today worshiping and talking about God and Jesus is because of what happened on that day of Pentecost. It's amazing when you really think of that. We're proof of that. So I want us to understand and look at what happened that day uh, from Acts chapter 2. And again, I don't ever want to assume anything. So in the New Testament... We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John coming out of Easter. Those are four accounts of Jesus' life. Two eyewitnesses and two people who interviewed eyewitnesses. And then right after that book is the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, uh, we're going to look at that and realize that on this day, 3,000 people made a decision for Jesus Christ that day to name Him their Lord and Savior. 3,000. Now, y'all know what conversion factors are, right? And this is how I think about conversion factors. I, I, for a long time, have made pancakes on Saturday morning for my kids. And invariably, I'm sure this never happens at your house, somebody's lost the, the measuring cup. Does that drive you on that? It's like, where's the dang measuring cup? And you're flipping through things and slamming drawers and trying to find it. Maybe you don't do that, but I do. But anyway, and then you finally end up with a one-third. And you're like, well, I'm an idiot, but I can figure this out. One-third. One-third, one-third. Okay, that's a cup. I can make the pancakes now. But you have to do that conversion thing in your head. Now, we understand that conversion factor uses your knowledge or my knowledge in the relationships between units to convert this unit to this unit, right? Sometimes we go, what? How many, you know, think about like a torque wrench when you're torquing like inch, pounds, foot pounds. Whoa, what do I do, you know? And you have to convert that. So we understand conversion factors in terms of measurements. And we may understand it in terms of converting an opportunity we have to success. You know what I'm talking about there? 
Now, I think things in sports, and I go, here we go, get another sports illustration. He never stops. But anyway, that helps me in life. So I think about converting an extra point in football, right? You either kick it and get one, or you convert the two-point conversion, and you get two points. And I think about it in basketball. When you get fouled, you have to convert those free throws into points. And then in baseball, you've got to convert the double play to end the inning. So you convert things. But I want you all to think about for a minute, how do we take a conversion factor and convert our lives? What factors go in to converting you or converting me? And there were factors that converted us, right? I mean, everybody that's here today that's a follower of Jesus, you have a story about what factors led to you coming to Jesus, right? And I would imagine it's a great story. And there's people that were involved. They were the factors. It's not just factors like random, but there were people. There were situations. And you go, this happened, and then this happened, and then it it connected with me. And so that's what we want to talk about. I want us to look for the next few weeks at what factors played a part in those early uh, conversions that we read about in the book of Acts. That's when the church first got started. And I want us to look at those and say, how does that connect in the 21st century? Now, Jonathan got us started last week, a great, did a great job with the story of the Ethiopian official and how Philip, one of the original 12 disciples, he was part of converting this Ethiopian guy to know who Jesus was. You know, he followed this prompting from the Holy Spirit to go to that chariot, and he sat by, and you remember last week, and he goes, he told him the story. He says, from that passage in Isaiah that he goes, is he talking about him or somebody else? And he says, from that passage... He told him the story of Jesus. And then they went by water, and he goes, here's water, why can't I be baptized? And they were baptized, and then the Holy Spirit took Philip away. But you realize that was after the day of Pentecost. You see, the Great Commission was on. So that's what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. So, But today, I want us to recognize that there were major conversions that took place in that early church and uh, contributed to the transformed lives of a lot of people after Jesus' death, resurrection, and after his ascension. When he left, and there were many factors involved, so we're going to look through some of those. But the main factor I want us to see today that none of those conversions would take place, and none of the conversions worldwide would take place without the Holy Spirit. So that's the main factor, and I want us to understand that. So Jesus had promised this gift, this coming of the counselor. He called it to to the disciples, and we read clearly that in the Gospels. John is very specific in his Gospel in chapters 14 and 15. If you want to go back and read that sometimes and how specific Jesus was in talking about that. But it seems from John's Gospel in this book, Acts, that the disciples really didn't know what was going to happen when this Holy Spirit came. But on the day of Pentecost, as it's known, there's no doubt that the world would never be the same because of what happened on that day. And I'm not being dramatic, y'all. I'm just really, that's where it all really, really started. So we're going to look at Acts 2, and this is going to be long, but I think it's important to listen to what happened on that day. So we're going to start, there it is. Thank you so much. All right. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, and when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? 
then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And I'm going to skip down. Now, people see this and they go, something is crazy going on here. How are these people speaking in our language? How is this possible? They're Galileans. Okay? Now, when they say Galileans, you go, okay. But we, this would be kind of like a, um, a derogatory thing when you said a Galilean. It'd be like a country bumpkin. Or in the first service, I said Alabama, and there was somebody here from Alabama, and they told me about it after the service. Now, they weren't mad, but they said, you might want to use Arkansas or Mississippi. And I'm like, <laughs> so just offend somebody else. I get it. So I'm just going to use country bumpkin, okay? But anyway, so people are going, these guys are from Galilee. That's this old country place, and he's a fisherman. How in the world do they know how to speak in that language? They've never even been out of Galilee or Jerusalem. How can they do that? So they recognize something supernatural was going on, but there were haters in that day too. And they said, no, they're drunk. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I've heard drunk people talk. And generally speaking, I've never heard somebody speak another language that actually was intelligible. And it's a language. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But anyway, they got accused of that, and Peter addresses that. But I'm going to skip down to verse 22 where he continues to address what's going on. People see this happening, and they're going, what is happening here? He says, fellow Israelites... Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him... I know the Lord always before me. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, Peter continues, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place on one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, he continues, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are afar off, and for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000... Y'all hear that number? 3,000 were added to their number this day. So, now what, what do we need to know about this passage? Like, well, Craig, that's great. That's an exciting, supernatural thing that happened in the first century. Well, 20 centuries later, what does that have to do with us? 
Well, it gives us a history. It gives us a background of not, uh, of not only how Jesus' great commission began, but also how it was carried out by his disciples and how the church actually got started. And that's important for us to know, y'all, and here's why. We're 20 centuries removed from that first century and how it started. You think things have changed in the church a little bit? Well, of course they have. When we read about church history, a lot of people got involved and started changing what God originally meant the church to be. And they did a lot of crazy things, didn't they? I mean, just read about it. You read about it in history. And we think about that. But do you realize the Christian church, who we're a part of, was started during the Great Awakening period of this country. Now, some of you that are in high school right now might be learning about some of that, and they go, oh, yeah, I did hear something about that. I remember. I was there. I wasn't paying attention either. But anyway, um, you hear about the Great Awakening. There were these revivals that happened, and the Christian church got started out of that because there were a group of Christians that says, something's going on in the church, and there's a lot of man-made rules, and there's a lot of stuff that's not in the first century, that wasn't in that first church in Acts. And that's just not right. We need to go back. We need to restore the church to what it was in the first century. And that's how the restoration movement got started. And that's the church that we're a part of. And so I hope that piques your interest and maybe you do a little digging. But that's interesting. And so that's why it's important for us to look at this and go, we have always got to be going, wait a minute. Have we changed something in Scripture to try to fit the culture? You ever see that happen in our culture? Well, I know know that, that meant that Jesus and God meant that for them in that century, but not for us. Because we're more sophisticated. We figured out we don't need all that. No, his word is always the same today, yesterday, and forever. So we have to always go back, see what happened. So what? let's go back and look at some of the factors that led to 3,000 people coming forward that day. Those in Jerusalem that day were utterly amazed. Again, as I told you, these Galilean men, how are they speaking in this language? This doesn't make any sense. We know this has to be supernatural, but why? And after being accused of being drunk, Peter, and we didn't read this part, but Peter explains what has happened, and he connects what's happening to an Old Testament passage from the book of Joel. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess, and don't raise your hand, but how many of y'all have actually read the book of Joel from the Old Testament? You know what you're talking about. Is there a book of Joel? Yeah, there is. So, but for us, we may not know that, but on that day, the Jewish people that were there for that festival, they were Jewish. They knew who Joel was. They knew he was a prophet. They knew which century he prophesied in. They had heard that book since they were little bitty kids in the synagogue every time they went on Saturday, and they had heard Joel over the years, and so they knew, and they knew Joel was talking about a Messiah that would come, and so now, all of a sudden, this country bumpkin, Peter, who's a fisherman from Galilee, is saying, that passage from Joel is connected with Jesus today. What you're seeing happening today, this supernatural event, is what Joel... And they're going, how does he know that? How does he know that? And I'm and Peter's probably going, is this me talking? Because I'm the guy who told Jesus I wouldn't deny him, and I denied him three times. And I bet the disciples are going, go, Peter, what is happening to him? And they all knew that ain't him, that's the Holy Spirit in him. They knew that it was really working. So then Peter connects all of this to Jesus and those in the crowd that day. They didn't have to be explained to who Jesus was. It's been 50 days since all this had happened in Jerusalem with the crucifixion and the resurrection. They know, some of them remembered on 
Palm Sunday that they were laying down their palm branches and they were saying, Hosanna to the end. You know, this guy can raise people from the dead. He can heal people. He can walk on water. He's going to finally take care of things politically, militarily. He's going to be our king and Rome is going down. And within a week they go, he's not going to do anything. He has that power and he's not going to do anything. So what did they yell a week later? Crucify him, didn't they? So Peter's saying in this sermon, you're the ones. You're the ones who put Jesus on the cross. You were there. So they know what he's talking about. And they said, he's been in, you've seen what he's done. And Jesus and his miracles and his teaching, they were probably there when he got arrested. They may have shouted, crucify him. Some of them may have actually been and saw Jesus get nailed on that cross. They may have stood there the six hours and watched him die. Some of them watched him get pulled off of that cross dead and put in a tomb. And then three days later, there's all this stuff going on. Where's the body? The political powers, Rome is going, you need to find a body. We don't need this. The religious leaders, you need to find a body. We don't need this. I told you this was going to happen, and him being resurrected is going to be worse than him being alive. And they were right, weren't they? The word worse being the variable there that probably should be changed. So they know exactly what Peter is talking about here. And they know that people have claimed to have seen Jesus alive, and they're all of a sudden going, what is going on? What is going on here? Even 50 days later, there's been quite this buzz. And Peter says in verse 23 that this was by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This isn't surprising for God. He knew all of this was going to happen. And so Peter also connects all of what happened to Jesus emotionally. Because some of them are going, he's right. I was yelling. I was yelling, crucify him. I was mad. But I know my friend Joe whose uncle told me he saw Jesus and he touched his hands and his feet. He's alive. Something is going on here. And it's starting to connect with all these people emotionally. And most of them understood that something is going on here. And then Peter makes another connection factor. He connects Jesus to King David. And again, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I assume most of us know who King David was. Oh yeah, he's the guy who put on Saul's armor and it fell off on him. It was so big and he says, I'll just take the sling and the and the stone, and I'll go after that giant from the Philistines. And he did, didn't he? And we know that story. I mean, he hit him in the head and knocked him down, and he was the hero. And he became probably in the heyday of Israel, the golden age of Israel. They remember David was the man. For 40 years he reigned, and we were the world power, and God was with David. And so their connection to him and the role he played in Israel's history was a major significance and importance to them. And so here's another factor in the conversion experience for this audience, connecting Jesus to the greatest king of Israel's history. And to have this ordinary fisherman from Galilee taking the writings from the Old Testament and Jesus and David and putting all this together and he's supernaturally speaking a different language and he's connecting Old Testament prophecies, that opened their eyes and was convicting to them. They go, I don't understand all this. But that guy is connecting and convicting me. Have you ever been convicted about something? Y'all know what it means to be convicted about something? That means something in your heart, in your soul, in your mind is just, it overwhelms you almost emotionally, doesn't it? I, I know in my heart that this, I feel this way because this isn't right. And it should be this. And we feel convicted about that. And they recognize now that all this is happening that 
they had missed something. How did I miss who Joel was talking about? How did I miss when I was throwing down my palm branch on one week and yelling crucify him on the next? How did I miss all of this? He really was the Messiah. He was here in my own midst and I missed him. How is that possible? And clearly from a historical standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, from an intellectual and emotional standpoint, and now from a supernatural standpoint, they're going, this is convicting me. I don't know why, but I'm convicted that he really was who he said he was. And so in verse 36, Peter takes all of these factors he has shared and he draws this conclusion for the whole group. Y'all, we're talking about thousands of people. And he says, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, some people are going, what are you talking about, man? I didn't crucify him. There's some haters out there. But listen to what most of the crowd said. Verse 37 lets us know that the Holy Spirit was working in a lot of people that day, in this whole situation, and it produced conviction in those people, which led to a conversion in these people. And Luke says, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, I ask you if you'd ever been cut to the heart. Have we ever been cut to the I mean, have you ever been convicted? But how about being cut to the heart? Or something that's just, man, it's like, man... God is speaking to me through this situation, through this relationship, through what is happening. And I know something needs to be done. I don't need to feel something. I don't need to think something. I don't need to say something. I need to do something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do something. So he said, they said, I don't need to just say, okay, I got you. I was wrong and go on and live my own life. No, he says, they said, brothers, what shall we do? They knew they needed to do something, not just acknowledge something and go back to their old life. And Peter tells them what they must do. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that's making me say all these things as a Galilean country bumpkin that should know all these things, that's the Holy Spirit. And you can have that too. It's not exclusive. I'm including you. Jesus included you to have that spirit of him to live in you. And verse 41 says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. Now, I try to say, and that's what I like to do when I read the Bible, what was it like to be there that day? So let's just say, after this sermon, all of you came forward. Okay? All of you came forward to be baptized. Man, that would be awesome. And the rest of you are going, yeah, I know. Craig's usually, I sleep through most of his sermons. But today, I don't know what he said, but everybody at church came forward and got baptized. I'd be, I'd be going, Gavin, you're going to have to help out. We've got to baptize some people. I'm going to be grabbing elders. Gary, come up here. We're going to have to baptize. Could you imagine? Y'all aren't going to lunch until everybody's been baptized. Now, we laugh, but how awesome would that be? You would not forget that day at church, would you? Not at all. And you would know that something happened that day. That's a lot of converts, and there was a lot of celebrating that day, not only there on earth, but also in heaven. So why do we need to know this? Well, that's great in the first century, Craig. What does it have to do? Well, again, it's how the church got started. It shows us the connection between the Old Testament. The other name for testament is covenant. There was an old covenant. Keep the laws, and God will be happy with you. And we couldn't do that, could we? So there's a new covenant. 
in Jesus. I know you couldn't do it, so I died for you. And now you can live in peace. You can live with the grace of Christ in a new life. And it shows that the Holy Spirit can and does use factors in my life and in your life every day to convict us and ultimately convert us from a sinful, dead person to a resurrected, transformed person. And that's what God wants out of us, right? That's what He wants in our lives. And the Holy Spirit uses historical things. And when I say historical, not just history distance from me, I'm talking about your family history and my family history and my history in relationships and things and places. He uses those situations, spiritual situations, intellectual, emotional, and supernatural perspectives to get our attention, doesn't He? He always does. Have we ever been cut to the heart about something? And today as you read Luke's account, what's your reaction? Oh my gosh, would he hurry up? Is he still rambling? Or is your mind trying to process these things that you hear Luke talking about in his account and what happened that day? And you go, what is God trying to tell me? Are you considering becoming a follower of Jesus here today, or maybe you're already a follower of Christ like me, and you've been in church so many times you can't even count it anymore. But I think the Holy Spirit's convicting some of us in areas of our life that need to be converted. You know what I'm saying? There's areas in my life I need to be converted on. Maybe you've been a Jesus follower for a long time, but are we living a life that shows that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah of our life? Is there something in your life or an area of my life that needs to be converted? And that's probably true, isn't it? I don't know what it is for you. You may not know what it is for me, but I believe, and I think we need to believe when we read about this day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit can still work in our lives to convict us, to cut us to the heart and say, you need to change that in your life, Craig. You need to change this in your life. I don't care if you're a preacher. I don't care how many sermons you've done. You need to be convicted of this in your relationship, in this situation, or, or whatever it is you're going through in your life right now. So sometimes we must ask the honest question like the people did on that day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, what must I do? Right? What must I do? I don't need to worry about what Diane's doing. I need to worry about what Craig's going to do. Lord, what do you want me to do? And he told them that day. And are we willing to ask that question? And in faith, move forward to what he calls us to do next. And it can happen at any time. And maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today. And I don't know that. But I know he's speaking. He always speaks to us. You know, sometimes we say, we, go, we pray before something. We go, Lord, we just want to invite you into our, into the, we want to invite your presence here today. And I'm like, man, he's already here. Does he need my invitation? I know what people are doing. I get it. I'm not making fun of him because I probably said that prayer too. But he does not need our invitation. That's how much he loves us. He is a God that loves us and is present always. But he wants us to invite him to do something in our lives. So this morning we're going to offer an invitation. Maybe it's, it's naming Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just like those people did on Pentecost for the first time. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and ask the, our, our praise group to come on up. And maybe there's somebody here that, you know, maybe God's doing something in your life that you need to be convicted of and you need to convert in your life or in my life. So maybe that's something you need to work on. And while we're preparing our hearts for communion, and uh, again, if you're here today for the first time as our guest, we want to welcome you, but we take communion every week because we go back to that first century church and what did they do? They took communion, we believe, every time they got together. So we practice that still. 
so that my heart can be convicted and remember what Jesus did for me. So we're going to offer that. If you are not a member here, that's okay. If you're a believer, we invite you to be a part of that. So we're going to prepare our hearts for that. But as we, as a, uh, the praise team leads us in this next song. We want to prepare our hearts for that time of communion. But if you have a decision to make, we want to. We had a young lady, ten years old. I got the honor to baptize her in the last service, and that was an awesome thing. Um, and now she is a new creature. And her heart was convicted at ten years old, y'all, that she needed some things. And I'm like, "What did you do wrong at ten years old?" But she knew God was speaking to her, and now she's a child of God. She is a new creature. Um, through Christ Jesus. So if somebody needs to do that today, we're going to do it. So I'm going to ask you all to stand. The band's going to lead us. And if you have a decision, walk through it. If not, we're just going to prepare our hearts for communion together.